Thank you for downloading the What I Witness podcast. This is your host, Jose Ortega. On this terrifying episode, you'll hear a story that I have been told my entire life about a haunted home in Salt Creek, Colorado. I was very young during the time of this occurrence, so I have very little recollections of my own. I have one memory of that day when my mom and dad went out to the house, but I'm unsure if it is something that I actually witnessed or if I manufactured a memory based on how many times I have heard this story. My father is the primary narrator of this story. My mom and sister also share their perceptions of the same occurrence. My father was interviewed separately from my sister and my mother. My name is Jose Anselmo Ortega, and this is what I've witnessed. Back in about 81, a friend of mine that we all grew up together, and we all had a, a similar interest in the occult, ghosts, UFOs, uh, Don Juan, the teachings of Don Juan. And he came, at that time, I had always had an interest. Uh, my favorite magazine at that time, from seven years old up to now, if I can find copies of them, is Fate Magazine, which had to do with the uh, poltergeist, ghosts, UFOs, all these, uh, the Yeti, just a bunch of anomalies that, that I was really interested in. So my friend Juan Sarate was telling me about his sister who was dating uh, a Mexican national, and he lived in Salt Creek. And he started telling me about some things that had, uh, his sister was telling him that were going on at the house, rocks falling here and there, and just real strange. So we decided that we wanted to go check it out. So first thing we did was my favorite place, the library. We went and started uh, looking up information on poltergeist and hauntings and different things of that sort. My name is Lorraine Ortega, and this is what I witnessed. I witnessed a house in Salt Creek, um, paranormal activity, I would say, poltergeist. Uh, we all went up to, uh, stories had been been told about this home. Some friends of ours had said that there was things going on at night. Things were flying around the house and all this stuff. So the fellas decided to go to the house to investigate. And I, you know, we all went down there. We took our children and everything. And when we got there, I, everybody kind of went around the house looking. We made the kids stay in the car because I was scared. I was yet eager to be there because I knew for some reason I had to be there. And I remember being in front of the house and I just felt my body uh, started to sway and swing like in a circle. And there was this woman at the front of the house, this elderly, older lady with white hair, kind of a long dress with an apron. And... I like had no control of myself, my body and my functions. I just was twirling in a circle, I remember. And I hollered for my husband because I felt this woman was going to take me by the hand. She wanted me to get her, her hand. And that's when I hollered for my husband to come and he came. And when he came, I was barely holding on to the porch because this lady was trying to take me. She wanted to take me by my hand. And then after that, while we all left, we left that house. The guys were going to go back. I told them, I don't want to be here. We had our children there. They were little. So we all went back to the house, and the guys gathered up, and they got their their garlic and their holy water and they were going to go down there with their holy dirt and they were going to be ghostbusters at this house and we stood with my other friend at her house and all the fellas went down there 
And before they had left, I told my I told him not to go. And I seen this blood on my husband's head, and I went to wipe it off where he had gotten blood on his head from. And there was blood on my fingers, and then it there was nothing there on his head. And I told him not to go, but they went anyway. My name is Matrina Vega. And this is what I witnessed. I was about four or five years old. Um, I am the eldest daughter of Jose and Lorraine Ortega. There was talks of a home in Salt Creek in Pueblo, Colorado, which is a old um, Mexican village back in, you know, from the history of Pueblo. And... Uh, there were stories of this home and um, of a man that lived there. And I remember my dad and his friends talking about this house. And I remember coming in a car to drive up in the driveway. Uh, my mom was there. My dad was there. They were going to meet other friends there. And I had asked my dad, where are we going? And he says, we're going to a real haunted house. And from right that second, I was scared. <laughs> Before we even got to the house, I was afraid. And um, so we pulled up to this home, and it was a little tiny house, um, kind of like a roundabout uh, uh, dead-end road. And we were in a big car. My brother and I, like I said, we were, back then, I don't think even seatbelts were legal, but uh, my brother and I were in the back seat, and our parents got out of the car, and I was afraid, you know, because they were going, they were leaving us in the car by ourselves. <laughs> Where are you going? You know, they were just told us, stay here, stay in the car, don't move. And so I remember them leaving into the house, and for to me, even you know the age that I was, it did seem like a very long time that they were gone. Um, when they came back, I recall my mom was a little, you know, almost on the verge of his hysteria. She was, um, she was very upset. She was crying. She had. Um, told my dad that she didn't want him to go back and all the way home back to the east side of town which was maybe about four or five minute drive she she was she was upset pleading with him not to go back so a saturday night came along it was august probably 1981 and we decided to get prepared before we went I took a Bible, uh, some holy dirt from Santuario. Uh, we stopped at St. Neander's Parish and we got some holy water. I had a rosary with me. And we went to Salt Creek. And Lillian was there with her boyfriend. Uh, they were getting ready to go out for the night. And he started telling us, and again, a lot of this was in Spanish, um, he started telling us that rocks would fall in the house, that when they went to bed, that rocks would fall from the ceiling, and that rocks would hit the house. And then Lillian said, well, tell him about the time that I came to pick you up. So apparently, a week or so before that, they were getting ready to go out. Um, Jesse had gotten paid, and they were going to go have dinner, and they were going to go have a few drinks. So he came home from work. He said he came home from work and took a shower, got ready, and he was sitting out on the little porch in front of the house. And as he was sitting there, he said he just got really drowsy, really tired, and his eyes just shut on him. And he says the next thing he knows, he opens his eyes, and there's a lady in white standing next to him. And that she just reached down. And he said, I could see her reach down, but I couldn't feel her when she grabbed my elbow. But when she grabbed my elbow, I stood straight up. I just stood straight up. 
and she led me into the house and laid me on the bed. I was laying on the bed, and I was looking up at her, and she was standing above me, and she was holding a a knife. Now, I don't know if you've seen pictures of them, but like a sacrificial knife, he, he described it, how it had a point, and it would go up, and then it would dip in, and then go straight again and dip in two or three times, uh, three or four times until the hilt of the knife. Around this time, Lillian shows up to pick him up. And she's outside honking and honking and honking. He doesn't come out, he doesn't come out, he doesn't come out. So finally she gets out of the car to go see what's taking him so long. And she says she got to the door and she saw him laying on the bed. And she went in there and she said, Jesse, Jesse, wake up. You know, what, you know. And he said he just, like, shook his head and he was clear. But when he got out of the bed, the outline of his body was in line on the bed with sweat. It, it was so bad that he had to change. He took another shower and changed clothes that when he got out of the bed, she said you could see the outline of his body in sweat. And so, okay, cool. You know, so we're listening to all this. We're already there at the house, and we're listening to him tell us all this stuff. And the house itself didn't look scary, or um, it was rather indescript. And, but I had a feeling, like an underlying feeling of something. But it wasn't dread. It was so I don't know if it was something coming from the house or whether it was just my anxiety about what could happen. But at any rate, they left. And they told us, okay, well, I'll go ahead and do whatever you want to do. You know, we'll be back, you know, after the, after they were done going and having drinks. So everybody left, and we were there without a beer. It was that time of the month where everybody was broke, so we were just hanging out. We had taken a couple of uh, tape recorders with us. And let me describe the home to you. The front of the house was maybe 20, 25 feet wide. And there was a small uh, porch right in front of the front door. You walk in the front door, there was a living room slash bedroom. They had a bed in there. And right to the right of the door, there was a... Uh, a little room, maybe big enough for a cot, a small cot in there. And then of a next doorway led into the kitchen, which was a really large kitchen. They had a table, all that. And to the right of the door, there was maybe two feet between the edge of the door and that wall. Um, there was nothing. It was just a wall. And to the left was the counters, sink, uh, refrigerator, stove, all that to the left, which was probably, oh, six, seven, eight feet away from the door, from the edge of the door. And after that, there was another little room, real little room, and the bathroom, and that was it for that part of the house. So we looked all through there, and we checked everything, and we just looked around, and we walked to the back, now, this house is probably 120, 130 feet long, where the house in front that I just described ended, there was like a, a room that had been blocked off. You couldn't get in or out, other than part of the back wall had fallen in. It had real thick... Um, I want to call it chicken wire, but it's not really chicken wire. They're real tiny uh, holes, and it's very, very strong. And we noticed that the window was broken inside, but the glass had, was all from the outside in. All the glass was inside the, that little room. And we would try to push on that screen, but we couldn't even budge it close enough to get to that um, 
window so we couldn't figure out how the window broke but broke from the outside going in so we move on down and there's another little room and this one has all the walls everything and it's the same exact uh, thing as the room we had just seen other than all the windows were there and uh, it had the screen over the windows and the back wall was all intact everything it was just an enclosed room that had been sealed off. There were no doors going in from uh, the outside or from the inside, from room to room. So after that room, there's another, let's call it an apartment. Uh, there was a kitchen, a small uh, living room, and a small bedroom. And that was the house, but it was very long. And so we decided that we were going to put one of the recorders back there to see if we could pick anything up. Uh, EVPs or anything, because you know, we had done our research. You know, we were, we were on the hunt. <laughs> and we set up the, um, one of the cassette players back there, and we went back to the front. We went in to wait and see what happened. And every once in a while, we would go back out and look out the outside and go back to the back room and flip the tape, listen to the tape, see if there was anything on that we heard. If not, we would flip it. And we kept flipping it until we figured we would find something. The other one, the other cassette uh, recorder that we had, we had put it in the kitchen uh, in the front house. And we just sat around and talked and nothing Nothing. There was no feeling. There was no um, uh, feelings of dread. No, it was, we were just there. Now, okay, well, maybe this is all BS, you know, maybe it's all bullshit, not, you know. And we waited and we talked and we just kept doing this all evening for several hours. <laughs> About one thirty, Lillian, that's John's sister, and Jesse, was the name of the man that lived there with his roommate. I believe his roommate's name was Rogelio. I don't really recall, but I, for some reason, that's I believe it was Rogelio. They came back, and it was about 1.30 in the morning. And they came in, hey, did you hear anything? Did you see? No, it's been quiet, nothing, nothing, nothing. He said, Okay. What about come inside? Now it's going to start. And come to find out later that the only time anything happened was when Jesse was there. Okay? Which could be a red flag. Right? So we were sitting in the front room, and again we were just talking, but not 10, 15 minutes after they arrived, Started, hitting, started hearing like pebbles hitting the walls from the outside. And he said, see? And I could hear him, okay. Now, being skeptical, thinking, okay, well, he probably has friends out there throwing little rocks or something at the thing just to freak us out, you know. But they started getting louder and more forceful. You could hear the, the rocks were getting bigger and thrown with much more force. And we start kind of looking at each other like, Oh, you know, okay. So we decided we were going to go outside and look, right? Again, being skeptical, I wanted to walk around and see what I could see. The house to the east was maybe three, four feet between the houses and a fence between them. On the other side, there was a house, but it was probably 15 or maybe about 30 40 feet away. It's in the same yard. And behind that house and behind all these other houses, there was nothing. It was right up against the Bessemer Ditch. So there was absolutely nothing behind there. And we start walking around and looking, and we go back and we switch the tape in the back room thinking, okay, well, now that this guy's here, maybe we'll start picking something up. And... Rock started hitting the roof. 
And first, they were small rocks, a couple, an inch, inch and a half in diameter, and you'd hear them hit, and you could hear them roll, and you would see them fall off. And as we were going through this, you know, we're still looking around. I'm still looking around for anybody that could be just tossing them around. Well, they started getting bigger. And some of them had to be 10, 15 pounds. You would hear them hit the roof and roll. Sometimes they would come off the roof, but sometimes it would just, you would, the sound would just stop. And there was no rock that would come off that where you could hear where it was coming down the roof. No rock would end up hitting the ground. So sometimes it did, and sometimes it didn't. <clears throat> so we decide that we're going to go around the east side of the house, between the fence and the house, and uh, check out the room that had the wall down. And we went around there, and there's Lillian, Jesse, Rogelio, I, Mark, and John. And we're all walking down the side of the house. We get there. Mark and I decide to go in. And when we go in, we find that there's a, maybe a, a foot by a foot and a half chunk of floor broken out. It wasn't sawn out. It wasn't like a, a, somebody had put it there. It was just old wood that had gone through, you know. And um, we walk in, and I told uh, Mark, because Mark was the baby. He was the youngest one. I told me, see if there's anything under there. Because that was one of the things we had researched, and sometimes poltergeist, there's something left that belongs to them or have some attachment to them, and that's why, you know, they want to attract attention to what's going on there, you know. <clears throat> so Mark got down, and he went to reach under the board, under the floor. Phew, a cat jumped out from under there, man, and ran, ran out the damn door, scared the shit out of everybody. I mean, everybody jumped, and <gasps> Lillian screamed, you know. And I can't tell you what color the cat was. It was just so quick that it was just a flash. Psh, freaked everybody out. And then uh, Mark looked at me and I said, well, check. You know? <laughs> and he got down on his hands and knees and he looked. And he said, Sam, you'll never guess what I found. I told him what? He says, it's like a treasure box. I said, I'll get it. <laughs> and he said okay and he reached under now he says that as the second that he touched it a very large rock hit the roof right where we were and it was one of those that it rolled but it didn't fall but it hit with so much force that it blew dust off of the the ceiling and there was dust I mean you could see it you could taste it and he pulled it out and it was like a little jewelry box that you get in Mexico that's shaped like a, a pirate's chest we opened it up and there was nothing in it there was just red velvet lining and it wasn't weather worn it, it didn't look like it had been there a long, long time. It, it looked in really, really good shape for being under a, a floorboard in a, a deserted house or deserted part of a house, you know. So we kept it. We had it with us. I said, well, let's take it in. We'll check it out. Maybe there's something under the felt or something you know, we can check. So we walk out, <coughs> and we walk all the way to the end of the building, and we start walking back. Right when we get to the part where the hole's in the wall, uh, I believe that uh, Mark was in front of me. It was Mark, I, and then John Serrati pulling up the rear. 
And when we walked past it, there was a, like a couch cushion. And I stepped on it, and I, you can feel the foam. You know, so I stepped on it, lifted my foot, and I was go taking my next step, and I felt weight on the back of the, the cushion that I was still standing on. I could feel weight, and I thought, man, Johnny must really be scared, man. He's right in my footsteps, right? And I turned around, and there was a rock, a good 10, 12-pound rock right where I had just stepped. And John had his eyes big, and he said, that one almost got you, Sam. So that freaked me out. And during all this time, rocks are falling on the roof, and they're rolling. At one point, a rock, in fact, this was when um, Mark and I were in that little room. A rock hit on top, and it rolled. But the thing is, it didn't roll down either pitch. It rolled straight across the eave of the house at the pitch, right at the tip. It rolled uh, north and south as opposed to east or west as the slopes went. And that was kind of weird. So we get, we go out, we go back in the house, talk for a few more minutes, and he's saying, now, see, see, do you believe? And it's like, I'm starting to, you know, in my head, I'm starting to. And we go back outside. And Mark and I, I whispered to Mark, I told him, let's get on the roof. Told him, let's get on the roof. You go towards the south, I'll go stay over here in the middle, and we'll just look around. And we'll see if we can't see anybody out there. Right? So him and I, and Rogelio, when he saw what we were doing, he jumped up there and he was in the, I guess that would be the northeast corner. And Mark and I are standing next to each other. And him on the east side of the pitch, me on the west. And we're looking, and we had already gone with flashlights up and down and looking, nothing, nothing, not a dog, not a cat, nothing. And we're standing there, and he whispers to me, Sam, do you believe? I said, I don't know, dude, I'm starting to. And boom! Right between us, there was a, another 10, 12, 15-pound rock right between us. It couldn't, you know, something that big, one of us would have had to see it coming, but it landed right between us. Like, now do you believe, sucker? You know, it was like, you know, I'll make you believe. So that, that, that freaked us out. We got down, and I'm shaking. You know, I'm nervous. I, I you know, that, that scared me. We decided to go back to the house again. We went to the back house and uh, turned the cassette. And then we went back to the front of the house. And he said, okay. He said, come in. He said, now we're going to turn the lights off. He says, and watch what happens. Again, still, my heart believes, but my mind is still skeptical. He sits in the middle of the side of the bed. Lillian sits between him and the wall. Okay? I sit next to him on the other corner of the bed. John sits to my right on a single chair. And then there was like a, a small love seat that Mark and Rogelio were sitting on. And the reason I did that was if he moved or he, you know, I would be able to feel the whole bed moving or Mark would feel the the couch moving if this other guy, you know, because to do something like that, you have to have some energy. You're going to have some force. You're going to have some, you know, action. And we turned off the light. Two or three minutes later, Boom! Turned on the light, 
and there was a huge rock sitting in the middle of the floor. Because we were like in a, not a closed circle, but close, and it was sitting right in the middle of the floor of all of us. And I knew this guy didn't move, and Mark knew that guy didn't move. So we just looked at each other. And all they would do would pick them up and just throw them out the door. They had a little pile of rocks right there. So we do it again. Turn out the light. And boom, but this time it felt, it sounded like glass breaking. And we turned on the light. And on the dresser that had a mirror behind it, there was a rock sitting on the dresser, right? But on the mirror, there was maybe a six-inch black streak where the rock must have left a streak on the the mirror, right? Because it sounded like the mirror broke, you know? But there was just a black streak, right? behind the rock where the rock was sitting. So we just kind of look at each other like, oh, no, you know, this is getting really, you know, out of hand. We did it two or three more times. So we decide we're going to leave. Okay, we decide that we had seen enough, and it was already maybe 4 o'clock in the morning. And so Mark goes back and gets the, the cassette from the back house, brings it in, and we still had the one in the kitchen recording. And we were standing in the uh, living room, right? And uh, John said, hey, rocks are hitting my car because he was parked right in front of the porch. And you could hear the rocks hitting it. You could hear the rocks hitting it, right? So it's like he, he went out there and jumped in and he pulled the car way back. And we all walked out with him. We all walked out with him. And he leaves his car there. He comes back. We get uh, that cassette, uh, the other recorder. And we're all getting ready to leave. We're all in the front room heading towards the door. And we get to the door. And... Everybody walks out. Jesse uh, waits to lock the door. He shut the door, and there was a bam, loud, loud. He opened the door, and there was a rock sitting just where he had closed the door. Okay, so we all go back in. Check it out. We're walking out, and he walks in front of me. I shut the door behind me. And bam, something hit the door. Something hit the door hard. We opened it up, and it was that little treasure chest. And it was broken all over the floor. So it hit that door hard enough where it just completely break. So we did it again. Everybody's, okay, well, let's, let's, we, we're out. Everybody's kind of freaked out. One more time, we shut the door. And bam, another bam. Well, of course, we have to see. We open the door. And a butcher knife that had been on the counter in the kitchen. All night, we had all seen it. It was just a few feet from where we had the cassette player, the recorder. It was laying between the kitchen door, the front door, with its point pointing right at the door. And that's when we said, you know, that's it. You know, because now it's getting really threatening. Like, you know, I felt like it was threatening us. Like, you know, it could be you kind of thing. So we left, and when we closed the door, there was another bang, but we left. We left, Johnny, I, and Mark uh, left, and they were following us. Now, it was in Salt Creek, so we're coming up the Burry Road, and 
um, Hickey, John, uh, we would take the right fork to go up to the Upper East Side. And Lillian lived on the Lower East Side, so that's where they were going. Her, Rogelio, and Jesse, they were in the other car. And so we get to John's house, and your mom's there. You, all you and Matrina there, but you guys were small. And we're like tripping. You know what I mean? We're talking about it, and we're talking about all the shit that we had felt and seen, everything that he had told us. And then they ended up leaving because this big knife started flying in the house is what they said. I wasn't there during this, so this not, you know, something I saw. But when they came back from the house, they were all shaken, all of them. So we started listening to the tapes, right? We started listening to the tapes. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And then we get to the the tape that was in the kitchen. Now you can hear rocks and stuff hitting, you know, the sides of the house, top of the house, the roof. And you hear John say, hey, rocks are hitting my car. And you can hear all of us go outside. You know, you can hear all of us talking out there. You know, and he's moving the car back and we're all standing out near the porch talking you can hear us you know you can hear everybody that was there talking back there and right at that time to me it sounded like somebody took uh, paper bags or newspaper and got right up on the mic and squished it and then you heard a made our hair I mean that made our hair on our neck stand up I mean because you could hear all of us outside you could hear everybody going out there and talking and and all of a sudden for that just to sound like I said it sounded like newspaper or uh, a paper bag just squished right in front of the microphone just and then that deep roar and that, that, you know, uh, your mom heard that when I heard that. And it was like, oh, shit, you know, something's up. Something's going on. The next thing I remember was waking up. We had slept at John's house because the, the mothers, the women, decided to stay together with the kids to wait for the guys to get back. So we fell asleep there and... When I woke up, there was, they had brought back the cassette tapes that they had done over there. And at that point, they were just very excited to listen to the tapes because at that point, they had not even listened to the recordings that they had taken at the house. But when they had returned, they had all had experiences that they were talking about amongst each other and I can remember them just saying you know different things you know um with such uh fright and enthusiasm but very eager to listen to these cassette tapes and they began to listen to them and they were talking as they were listening to these cassette tapes of um I remember one of the cassette tapes, you know, it was uh, like a, you, you can hear, I, I, okay, so they had taken multiple uh, cassette recorders. They had placed them in several places of the house. So they were playing the different cassette tapes that they had taken during that time. And some of the cassette tapes were not as active as the others, but I recall listening to one particular one that was very um, scary. <laughs> um, what it sounded like was um, you, you can hear everybody leaving that room. And from what I understood, that particular cassette was in the living room. 
and you can hear the voices all leaving the room. You can hear the footsteps leaving and you can hear the voices starting to fade out. And from what it sounded like to me was maybe somebody kneeling down, gathering newspaper, like a crumble and a growl, this weird growl that came during that sound. And we're sitting there and all of a sudden from way out there you could hear beep, 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 beep. You know, and realize it's a car horn. And it was Lillian. You could hear her for blocks and blocks and blocks away hitting her horn. They get there. And... Jesse walks in, and he's bleeding. He has a, a rag, but he's still bleeding. He has a, a gash in his head. When we took the right fork to go up to the Upper East Side, Lily went to her house, which was like on Ash and Hudson, somewhere down in the Lower East Side. And she had one of the long houses. You know, one uh, front room, kitchen, bathroom, you know, just a long house. She had her swamp cooler connected into the kitchen, which was at the back part of the house. And they didn't have it connected, so they had to use the hose, right? So there was a brass nozzle. Do you remember the brass nozzles to water with? It was on top of the air conditioner because Mark remembered putting it there because he was the last one that put water in it before they left. Well, they got to the house and they pulled up in front of Lillian's and Lillian and Rogelio looked at Jesse and they told him that he was glowing red, that they could see him glowing red. And he'd done, ah, you know, you guys are crazy. You guys are just, you know. And they'd, no, you're red, you know. You're red. And they got out of the house, they got out of the truck, um, the car, and they went in the house. And in the house, they could still see him red, right? And they told him, no, no, something's wrong. Something's wrong. You're red, you know. But he would look at his reflection. He wouldn't see it. But they swore up and down that he was red. so they go back to the car they decide they're going to go see us they go back to the car and Rogelio gets in Lillian's driving so she's on the other side of the car and when Jesse bent down uh he was getting ready to, to get in the car, and he said he heard a whistling sound, right? He said he heard a whistling sound, so he, like, ducked, and that nozzle hit him. That nozzle that had been down the side of the house, that, that thing would have had to go, gee, I don't know how many feet, and then hook to the, hook to the left in order, because they were where they were parked. It wasn't a straight shot it would have had to hook to the left and he got a gash it hit him gashed him hit the top of her car right and uh, like scraped it like you could see where it had hit it was with that much force that after it hit him it still had enough force to to uh, mark up the, the roof of the car so now Lillian's really freaking out so they start going and they decide she decides that what he needs to do is go to to a priest. They went to St. Leander's. And the priest wasn't too happy about being woken up at that time. And they had had a few drinks, so they smelled like alcohol. And he just told them they were drunk and to go get away and, you know, whatever. So they go to the house. And they're honking and they're honking. And, and he walks in and he's bloody. 
and Lillian and her boyfriend had come back later. That's when we were all in the house talking about what happened, and we heard the horn honking from way far, and and it was it was Lillian and the boyfriend. They had come because when when they had went to the house on the side of the house was a nozzle that you watered the grass with and it came flying around the house and it hit that guy on the forehead and when he got to the house that's what when he had the blood running down his face and stuff and we all stared and looked at him he was he was like even luminous he's like why are you all staring at me you act like I'm the devil or something the next thing I remember was honk, a horn, a horn honking from far away outside. And everybody got up because they can hear, is that here? What's going on? They, you know, they they can hear the horn, everybody. And I remember I was in the living room looking through the kitchen because the kitchen door, the back doors where the main entrance where they were coming in and out of. Maybe I believe that's where they park the cars and that's the main entrance. And um, I remember them coming in, um, Lillian and Jesus, I believe their names were, um, coming in the house and they were speaking Spanish, but they were afraid and they were all, um, you know, pretty much, she was more upset. He was just bleeding from his head. And my mom, once, <laughs> once they walked in and she seen the blood on his head, I remember her just like, Jose, oh my God, Jose. Or she, she acknowledged to my dad about this man. And then I remember my mom pulling us close, pulling me close to her. And I remember, before you know it, all of us, like when they first walked in the house, everybody was crowded around them. But all of a sudden, everybody was standing on one side of the room. And he was standing by himself, just bleeding. And he said something in Spanish. And I just remember looking at him and just that the blood coming down from, you know, his head and his hands and just all over his clothes and it, it, it was terrifying it, it was terrifying to me I after I believe what he had said in Spanish was um why are you all looking at me as if I'm the devil or something to that sense but when, as a child I was just young he was you know he spoke Spanish I didn't understand what he said but I remember standing and staring and looking at him with that um that heaviness we all just sat there, and we were all just staring at him. And uh, he was saying, you guys are looking at me like I'm the devil. You know? Well, we were. <laughs> not not thinking he was the devil, but me, myself, speaking for myself, I was wondering, what is it about this guy? That, that this entity uh, messes with him, right? And that's what I'm thinking. I don't know what the other people are thinking, but that's what pretty much what my thoughts were. So everybody calmed down finally, and they left. We left. A couple of days later, um, John had moved, and he moved a half a block from my parents' house in Catacorner. right on the corner of Troy and 10th. And so we had helped him move. And he, uh, he said, let's go check, you know, because Lillian said that she couldn't, um, she tried to call Jesse, he wouldn't answer the phone. So we went down there. No Jesse. No Jesse. The guy that lived with me said, I don't know. Just, he didn't, he never came home. I don't know, you know. And uh, Lillian started calling people that they knew together and uh, 
and like he knew her, uh, his mom, and but nobody had heard him. He he never quit work. He never picked up his last check. He just like he never existed. You know, nobody knew where he was. Nobody could find him. Nobody, you know. So we went down there, and we were talking to his um, to his roommate. And we started walking around the house again, looking in the different rooms. And there was a, a pile of rubbish that was just piled like in a, a little hill. Uh, old boards and papers, cans. And, and we're walking by and I look down. And I reach down and I pick up this paper. And it's a funeral notice. It was a funeral notice from like 1962, 68. But it looked brand new. It 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 didn't have water stains. It 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 was still stiff, like somebody had just put placed it there, you know. And I'm thinking, well, I guess it's possible somebody could have thrown some new stuff on top of this. But you know, I kind of had to reach under and because I just saw the corner of it, and that didn't make much sense. And I cannot remember the name of the person. I cannot remember the name of the person that that was on there. But that flipped me out. That that tripped me out too, thinking, okay, well, you know, is this another clue of what this whole thing could be about? And that's the last time that the three of us went there together. I've gone there two or three times, just passed by and check it out. I've never gotten out and checked it. But it was almost like it was almost like we had P, uh, PTSD. We were scared. When uh, it started getting dark, Mark and I would go down John's house, and we would stay there until the sun started coming up. Um, started really having some weird behaviors. For the first time in my life, I hoofed paint. And I think it was just to try to space it out, try not to, to think about it, not, you know, because, I mean, it was devastating. It really was. The, the whole situation was just crazy. And for days after that, my ex-husband would not let me turn the lights off. We slept with the lights on. They were, he was terrified. They were terrified. And it, it happened, it, that feeling was there for a really long time. We never, we tried to go back. And when we went back, the guy that lived in that house was gone. All his things were there. He didn't take nothing. He just disappeared. He took off. Lily and the girlfriend never knew where he went or what. But he left all his belongings and everything in the home, and he left. So we would leave uh, just when the sun was coming up. And when we would leave, we would walk straight down 10th Street, down the middle of the street. When we would get in front of my mom's house, I would go to my mom's house, and he would uh, turn left there because he lived across the alley from the house, across the street from where my parents lived. He lived across the alley, so he would just go to the Peralta's yard, and he was home. <coughs> so this goes on for a few weeks, and we kind of start um, not dwelling on it so much. We could all feel it, and we all knew that tension was there. But Mark and I uh, started going home a little bit earlier, a little bit before it got light. So we, we did that for a couple of weeks, and then a little earlier. We're walking one night, and we split, and I tell him, okay, I'll see you tomorrow, but he said, all right. And I go to my mom's backyard, and he goes to his mom's yard. And in my mom's yard, there was a... Um, a shed and I get to the back door and I hear <laughs> and I freeze right 
And I, I look around, see if I saw anybody, and I heard it again. <laughs> it was coming from behind my mom and dad's shed, right? And it freaked me out. It freaked me out. And I didn't say anything to anybody. Uh, next day, we got together. We did this again for four or five days. And every time I would get to my mom's backyard, I'd hear from behind the shed. And I wasn't going to go look behind the shed. <laughs> so one night, we're down Johnny's and we're talking. And um, Mark says, Sam, I have something to ask you. I said, what? He says, you know, when you go to your mom's house and, and I go to my mom's house, I knew when he said that I knew what he I knew what he was going to say. I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, somebody's whistling at me from behind my dad's house." Cuz his dad had a little house that he would stay in separate from the family. And I said, "How would it sound?" <laughs> now, how is the same whistle going to be coming from two different spots at the same exact time? You know, and I and I, my face, I could feel my face pale. He says, you hear it too, huh? Told me out. And I would hear it, and I would hear it. And even today, I can be out there at night back here, and I hear somebody, <laughs> it gives me the chills, freaks me out. It just, just. Like, I, it was almost like PTSD. Like, you know, there are certain things that, that sometimes just kind of trigger that little memory, and I get that that um, anxious, empty stomach kind of feel. So, a little while after this, speaking with my cousin Dorinda, Dorinda Gomez, they live in Salt Creek. And I started telling him what this guy said about the lady in white. And she got pale and she started shaking. And she told us that when she was a little girl, a teenager, uh, she babysat at that house. And that she had fallen asleep. And just like Jesse said, she kind of opened her eyes and there was a lady in white. And the lady in white took her and took her outside and made her kneel in the rain. And when they came home, that's where they found her, kneeling in the rain. And because and, it just all brought that back to her, you know? So um, there's... Something been going on there with certain peoples at certain times. Around this time, I find out that uh, Jesse, his real name, Jesus. And Jesse was his nickname. That And that kind of blew me away too, you know. Now the last time that... Um, I've had any connection to the house other than that the specific time when it happened and me telling Dorinda and her getting scared because that happened a little while after. Theo uh, Esteban was still alive and they were having something down Mona's. You know, she just lives right down here. Um, and I took him. I took him to it. And we were sitting around talking, and we were having a few beers, and uh, the girls started asking me, do you remember any of the uh, scary stories Grandma and Grandpa used to tell? Right? And, you know, I would. Re I told them some of the ones that uh, Grandma would tell, Grandma or Grandpa would tell us. I told them, you know what? Sometime, if you're really interested, I'll tell you a story. 
and it happened in Salt Creek, right? And they said, well, tell us. I said, well, it takes too long, and, it, you know, there's other people here. It's, you know, it was a, kind of a party. And he's a cop. Jose's a cop. And he had a couple of cop buddies there. And so I didn't want to get into it there. You know, little short, scary stories are one thing, but when you get into a whole convoluted uh, story, it's a whole different ballgame. Jose made it clear that he didn't want a discussion about that. All I told him at that time was that there was a house in Salt Creek where I was at that uh, um, rocks were falling and in the house and falling inside. And I told him, but I'll have to tell you the whole story. There's a whole background, a whole thing about it, but, you know. And uh, we're at Salt Creek, and I described we're on Santa Rosa. And he's listening, and he's, you can tell that he's not pleased about the way the conversation's going. It turns out that his family lived in the house to the east of it on the same lot. I told you it was on the same lot. And he didn't want to have anything to do with anybody saying anything about that crib. Another flag, you know. Why is this guy um, so dead set about hearing about this or having somebody else hear about it, you know? So I'm not sure where that was. but And that was within the last two, three years that that happened. And I've often thought about that, you know. Was there other stuff going on that they knew about? But he doesn't want to be reminded of it or he doesn't want it to uh, reflect on him, you know, because that, that, I guess that was, that was the impression I was getting. He didn't want it to reflect on him, either through family and especially with his friends, you know. Big badass cops don't want to be hearing that. You know, and but I just found that strange, and that was the last thing that was related to that house that I've experienced, and I guess that's what I witnessed. Whatever happened to the audio tapes? The audio tapes, um, I had them. And then I lend them to John. Oh, that reminds me of something else. Okay, that reminded me of something else. Okay, uh, we were down John's house. Uncle Martin, Uncle Tony, Dio Esteban, um, Manuel Atencio. You know Manuel Atencio? Uh, he doesn't like it, but they used to call him Pollo. Um, Johnny, I, Mark. And there might have been one or two other people. It was one of those nights where we all got together to play guitars. We were all just going to have a few beers and, and uh, play guitars and, you know, our things that we did fairly um, consistently. And so we start telling them this story. Right? And Poyo, ah, oh, fuck no, that's, no, that's bullshit. You know, that didn't happen. And I played the tape. I played the tape and that part came on. And he said, you know what? <clears throat> that's somebody just messing with the paper and farting. Right? And Everybody kind of looked at him like, come on now, you know, but he was trying to rationalize or trying, you know, being skeptical, you know. And right at that moment, there was a big bang on the porch. Right at that moment, it sounded like somebody had thrown something and hit the front door. It was one of those old aluminum flimsy screen doors. 
everybody froze. Everybody's, my heart stopped for a second because right at that moment when he's criticizing what's on the tape, there's this big bang at the door. We got up and went out there. Nothing on the porch, nobody around. The only thing was that there was a big teddy bear that they had sitting in one of the chairs and it was knocked over. But that, we were listening to that tape, telling him that story that night when that bang came out of nowhere and it was loud and hard. And um, I don't know if it made a, a believer out of Manuel, but I'm sure it put a dent in its skepticism, you know. But at any rate, um, between moving and other things, I just got misplaced somewhere, you know. Uh, you have a lot of that old stuff from the house. It might be in one of those boxes somewhere. So it's possible. You know, because that wasn't, this is probably only the maybe fourth, maybe fifth time I've ever told the story completely through. You know, I might, uh, if somebody's talking about it, I just might say, well, I was in a house where I saw rocks fall, you know, but not go into the whole detail because it still freaks me out. I mean, when I start thinking, my stomach starts shaking. I, I feel anxiety. I, I feel deep in anxiety, you know. Um, I end up being um, um, freaked out for a few hours or sometimes a couple of days. That's why I don't really tell it. You know, uh, Jenny's asked me over and over, and I talk about Wednesday nights, you, talk, you know, because I just have to be in that right mood where I want to get into the whole thing, you know. Uh, so this is one of the very few times in the last 40 years that I've told the complete story from beginning to end with every detail that I can recall at this time. Thank you for downloading the What I Witnessed podcast. If you have a story that you'd like to tell, email us at whatiwitnessed at gmail.com. W-A-T-E-Y-E-W-I-T-N-E-S-S-E-D at gmail.com.